Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now Hear This is a music review podcast and is not directly affiliated with any artists or album projects discussed on the show. Think of us like your record collection come to life. Well, except for your Lizzo collection. Those tracks are already alive. You got a record of your favorite songs. You got an hour and it won't take long. You got a pair of brand new friends. You got a ticket gonna stick to the end. I said, now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this show. It's all a golden period to me. Since I was born, it's been a golden period. <laughs> Life is a golden period, you see. Welcome back to Now Hear This. Oh, no. Another episode. <laughs> a different podcast. Dad, do you know where you are right now? I'm, You're on a different podcast. I'm probably on a different planet. <laughs> where am I? <laughs> so, as you know, with season three of Now Hear This, we are going through and we are tackling some of the albums that Ryan had chosen as his favorite albums, and we're going through with some guest speakers. You've already heard from Chris Mercer from the Take It Away podcast. You've already heard from Luther Russell and from uh, Annabelle Jones. And today, like a cat who has just found a mouse outside and eviscerated it and dragged it inside to the living room to show and to give to the rest of the family. I have dragged and eviscerated my father, Wayne Kaminsky. <coughs> Hello. Hi. Hi, hi, Dad. I feel like I'm going to call you Dad in this show. Daddy, it's but I also Daddy-o. But I think that's weird, too. But I just, I'm not, I don't think I can call you Wayne. Yeah, I can't call me Wayne either. Susanna recommends that I call you Daddy, but Daddy, seems, I don't like Daddy. No, a no, little no. sexy for this no, show. No. I don't like Daddy. <laughs> I don't like Hey You. <laughs> I don't know about Dada. <laughs> this is hey hey you guys. This is going great so far. <laughs> now hear this. Hi Susanna. <laughs> All right, there she goes. She can't hear you. So. Fortunately for us, or Ryan unfortunately, picked, yeah, Ryan picked an, an album that I would have picked, although didn't. I had actually picked a different album by the artist that we're going to talk about today. But Dad, today on the show, we're going to be talking about Ringo Starr and his 1983 album 
Old Wave. Now, I had actually picked, for now hear this, Ringo's 1992 album, Time Takes Time, Good album. as one of my picks. But Ryan went with Old Wave here. And I think that that is interesting because it is an album that is oft forgotten. And it's an album that even amongst Ringo's canon, some Ringo fans have just never heard it because it didn't come out here formally in the United States or the United Kingdom until over a decade after its release. That's right. And even then, it wasn't terribly celebrated. So I thought it was interesting Ryan chose this album, but you know, in going through it, I realized that not only are some of these cuts some of my favorite Ringo songs, but I think this is one of his best-sounding, highest-quality albums that Ringo ever made. True. True. I always felt the same. So this came out in 83. It didn't come out here. It didn't come out in the UK. And we'll get into the why in a moment. But, but Dad, at the time, Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about where you may have first heard this album or what you thought of it when it first came out? Yeah, I remember hearing about it on a New York radio station, WNEW-FM. With Scott Muni. Scott Muni and um, Scottso. And uh, he was talking about you know, this album of Ringo's that hasn't been issued in this country. And it had piqued my interest. Then I started reading about it in Rolling Stone and other places. And I'm like, well, where is this mythical record? (laughs) Now, when are you talking here? You talking late 80s, mid 80s? Oh, no, this is around 1983. Um, Oh, so the year it came out. Oh, the year it came out. Yeah, I was a Beatles fan, (laughs) even back then. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I was trying to get the records when they were released. And I just heard that it was really good. And then I heard Joe Walsh is on it. I was never a huge fan of Joe Walsh, but I did like his guitar work for whatever reason. And with the James Gang, I thought it was fantastic. So I had to find this record. And I used to make phone calls to all these places like Sam Goody, Record World, Crazy Eddie. No one had it. Did you try well-adjusted Eddie? Well, I don't think Crazy Eddie was ever well adjusted. (laughs) His prices were insane. But yeah, I I made a few phone calls and I had actually ordered this record. So in those days, you couldn't just say, I need, you know, I'm going to pick up this record. Can you order it with your shipment? This had to be a specially ordered product. And God knows right. where you know, they got it from Canada or wherever. And I have yeah. that record to this day. So I remember I was living down the shore in New Jersey. And no, I wasn't. I was living. I don't know where. I was just living. I have no idea where. You were under and, a bridge at that time, <laughs> weren't you? I yeah. could have been a troll. <laughs> um, <laughs> you never know. Well, it's, a, it's like, is the year you got? No. Yes. No. Maybe. Is this the year you got married, 83? 83. Yes. Yeah. So where were you when you were married, Dad? Can you remember that? In Middletown, New Jersey. (laughs) There you go. All right, then. I'm glad we cleared that up. But anyway, um, (laughs) I remember remember ordering this, and I found a place that would take an order for it, and that happened to be in Lawrenceville, New Jersey at the Quaker Bridge Mall, I believe. Wow. 
And so I had to make a special trip all the way from Middletown to Quaker Bridge. That's an hour and a half ride <laughs> just to get a Ringo record. <laughs> so yeah. I did order it, and it took a week to two weeks to get. And I was so excited when I picked it up. I was like, wow, this is the new Ringo album. Nobody has this, you know. Yeah. I put it on and got blown away by the first few tracks. It was good. It's very good. Commercial soundings, for sure. You mentioned Joe Walsh. Mm. He is all, I mean, not only did he produce the record, but he co-wrote a few of the songs. You know, we'll get into those as we go. But Mm -hmm. his fingerprints are all over this thing. And that was the first thing that kind of struck me about this record was that I think Richard Perry, Mark Hudson, and Joe Walsh, I would put Joe Walsh in that echelon, are the only three producers to ever really get Ringo. Like, yeah. get him. I totally agree. Basically, what you do with Ringo is you give him Beatles-sounding songs hmm. and make sure it's not a stretch for his vocal. That's all you have to do. <laughs> and don't bury it. Like, that's it. That's literally it. Just imitate Beatles songs. And make sure he's not stretching too far (laughs) in his vocal and put him up front. That's all. That's it. I mean, Arif Martin, we talked about this a bit on the other show that you do Mm -hmm. called the Yesterday and Today podcast. We just got up through 1976 and 77, and we heard some of the work that Ringo was doing with Arif Martin. And, you know, that stuff is fine. Rotograve, you're fine. You know, I wouldn't say it's amazing. I was actually very impressed by what Vinnie Poncia did with Ringo on Bad Boy because that's an album that I never think to listen to but has become a recent favorite for me. It's very uh, low-key, that album, in a lot of ways. It's just Ringo crooning. That's how I felt about it. She's invited the street, she gives me hard time. Oh, when she loves me, she loves me. She gives me hard time. Oh, when she loves me, she loves me. I tell her that I'd rather be alone. She gets the call and says she'll drive me home. She gives me hard I don't know, there's something about that record that I just appreciated kind of like in a way that an album like maybe Why Not hit me, where it surprised me, the quality surprised me enough where I was like, oh, yeah, this record, you know? Why not? (laughs) Right. But with Ringo, it's funny because he's not really a celebrated solo artist these days. Uh, That was not always the case. Hmm. When the Beatles split a couple years later by 71, 72, he was running singles to the top of the charts with some consistency for about two or three years there. Right. And was arguably the most chart topping or, you know, at least chart regular former Beatle of the bunch for a time. And then there's just a plummet. There's a steep decline, a steep plummet that he never really recovers from. Mm Mm-hmm. And turns into a different kind of act, which is fine. You know, I mean, there's still... I enjoy some Ringo albums more than I enjoy some John Lennon albums. And I think James had said that on, some, on, a, on a different episode of Yesterday and Today. But while that's a little controversial to say, on a pure listenability level, there are some Ringo albums, I think, that are 
heads and shoulders above some Lennon albums. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Must be in the production, like you were saying. You have people like uh, Richard Perry or Arif Martin. You know, you can see the differences. Well, maybe Lennon had Phil Spector or John Lennon even produced a lot of his own, along with uh, someone else. I forget his name all top of my head. Uh, Jack Douglas. Jack Douglas is one, and there was another fellow who passed away recently. I'll think of it. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, you can tell some Lennon albums just sound flat. But aside from that, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the music industry or the music <laughs> was changing. Yeah. To quote The Who, <laughs> music must change. <laughs> it just was going different. And people, I think, were starting to get bored of Ringo Starr. I hate to say it because I'm a big Ringo fan. Yeah. But people were just getting, you know, the general GQ people were getting bored. And people weren't buying the Road of Grey viewers anymore. You know, even though the Beatles were on it, sort of, by name only in a lot of ways. But um, yeah, that was one of the few with all four on it, right? It's Ringo, Road of Grey viewer, and um, well, it, w- it should have been Stop and Smell the Roses too, but as we know, it wasn't. Yeah, Road of Grey viewer, I think, just had. Paul and John didn't have uh, George on it, although George contributed a song uh, right. to which George I, sued him for. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. there's there's contributions, whether knowingly or not, from all yeah. <laughs> from all four. <laughs> True, but yeah, that brings us to stop and smell the roses. Right after Lennon died, people were clamoring for new Beatles. You know, people were bu- buying all that stuff. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So in early 1980, we're talking about Ringo's career here. And, you know, he started with Sentimental Journey and Bukuza Blues. Those albums were sort of niche projects. None of them really took off or anything like that. It was almost to get it out of Ringo's system a bit. And then the Ringo album hits in 73, and that's a smash, huge smash success. And prior Mm. to that, you also had a handful of singles, which George helped contribute Mm -hmm. to that were also running up the charts. And then you have the follow-up to the Ringo album, Goodnight Vienna, in 74, and that was another big hit. Although, by the time you get to 75 and he puts out the title track as a single, that single underperforms and starts to show a chipping away at the edges of Ringo's actual star power, even at that time, so like late 70, or early 75, rather. then you hit 76 wrote a grave viewer is Ringo trying to do it again and this time with a different producer again doesn't really reach the levels of the prior albums and so starts the decline I mean these these albums in terms of quality I mean that's debatable I think wrote a grave viewer is a fine album in a lot of ways but it's definitely not an album that had a lot of hits that you could pluck off of it like the Ringo album or even Goodnight Vienna yeah. And then you get to an album like Ringo the Fourth, which is, I think, 
pretty objectively speaking, a misfire on almost all levels. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, most people don't like that record. Maybe one of the more reviled Ringo albums. I don't know if it's super (laughs) fair. He was proud of it at the time. You know, he had, there was a lot of songs I think he co-wrote on that one too. And Mm -hmm. I think it was a personal record for him, but it just didn't connect with fans or critics. And now he's got two that are underperforming and he's probably feeling a little nervous. So he's back in the studio again immediately (laughs) (laughs) to try and correct the mistake with Bad Boy and decides, I think, smartly that he needs to do other things to promote it. So he does this TV special and he hits whatever, Donahue, right? Right. And then that one underperforms. Right. Despite it all. So now he must be sweating. (laughs) And the record company gets rid of him, too. That's the other thing. You know, that's... I guess that really took its toll on him and his psyche. So he's pretty much lost without his submarine. (laughs) Well, I mean, he must have felt awful because Paul was riding extraordinarily high at the time where Ringo's downturn was beginning, Paul's upturn was yeah. beginning, and he became a pop star unlike any, I think, of the former Beatles, aside from maybe George in his own right, where he was almost, I feel like, respected as a solo artist outside of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. He reached a certain kind of echelon there. And Ringo just was never quite able to recover from his missteps. And so by the time he hit early 80, Ringo was cast in a movie called Caveman. And that had uh, Barbara Bach in it. She was a, a Bond girl from that the movie, the Roger Moore right. movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. And apparently Ringo was smitten on the set. And they sort of fell in love just prior to the actual shooting of that film. And the reason why I mention that is because Ringo had a divorce with his longtime wife, Maureen, in mm-hmm. the uh, mid-70s, and then he had been dating Nancy Andrews and a couple others, I guess, Yeah, with yeah. some regularity. <laughs> he was engaged to Nancy for a while. Matter of fact, she took a lot of the still photographs for Caveman while that was happening. That's wild to me. Um, <laughs> that's crazy. You met during the filming of the... Uh, Caveman. Of the picture, right? That's right. Had you known each other at all before that? No, we met once. Yeah? Uh, at a party at the director's uh, house. Yeah. And said hello. <laughs> it was so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and we left, and then we worked for two and a half months. Just get this up here. Uh, for two and a half months, saying hello again. And uh, then we said hello. And during the picture, when you decided to get married? No. No. Just the other week. Was it just 10 days? I yeah. thought it was about just 10 days ago. Just 10 days ago. But you asked it's her our you were making... you know. 10 days? 10 days. You can make 10 <laughs> <Every> days. Day. <laughs> this is not the first time for either one of you, though, is it? No. No. No, this is our second. Right. Do you have children both from a... Yes. How does that work out? Did the kids meet each other? Did they... Uh... They did uh, when we got married. Good time for it. But, he, you know, so his personal life was in a bit of turmoil. As we know, he was struggling since the split of the Beatles and before with substance abuse, Mm. particularly alcohol, but you name it, he was um, indulging. But by the time we hit 80, I think the romance kind of gave him a bit of a reinvigoration there. It's funny because I learned that when the... (laughs) Do you know, have you heard this story? You may have heard this story. When 
they first consummated their relationship, it was after the rehearsing of that incredibly problematic scene where Ringo's character, Atuk, tries to drug and have his way with Barbara's character, Lana, while she's unconscious. So basically, Ringo roofies Barbara (laughs) and then tries to have his way with her but can't seem to do it and then gets crushed under the weight of her, like, lover on the other side. So anyway, (laughs) evidently, they rehearsed that scene and then everyone went home for the day and then they came back the next morning holding hands. (laughs) I guess they had Zug Zug. the craziest thing I've ever heard. I heard that too. Uh, we were watching Caveman the other night. That movie is very, very funny. That scene yeah. is crazy and definitely does not belong anywhere in decent society. First time I've seen Caveman was in a drive-in theater, actually, in Hazlitt, New Jersey. It was fantastic. And that yeah. movie went, it did very well, actually. People it's loved funny. it. Everybody I talked to at that time, even non Beatle fans, all loved it. So Ringo must have felt pretty good about that, you know, because mm. he needed a hit. <laughs> he needed mm-hmm. he needed something. He needed a bit of a victory. But after Caveman finished shooting, Ringo thrust himself into work. Again, that movie hadn't been released yet, but high on the experience, high on just meeting Barbara, high on Lord knows what else. But he began collecting songs from his three former Beatle chums. And he actually also asked Paul to produce him on the new record Mm -hmm. and that's where you get the beginning of sessions for songs like you can't fight lightning which is a really interesting one with basically wings and ringo right which hadn't been done since six o'clock here it comes again here it comes pretty wild that wings went in and backed him up and so by this time and i'm not really sure the chronology here but i think ringo's back in england at this time and back living at tittenhurst and he and barbara were involved in some horrific car crash in england where they totaled their car and and they walked away without a scratch and then that led the couple to start thinking about marriage so mm-hmm. instead of that being a rock bottom wake-up call to sober up they were like well we must be destined to be together <laughs> <laughs> also you have to remember and can't really leave out that his friend died his friend was killed during the recording of stop and smell the roses ringo was in the bahamas when you know that news hit So, you know, someone he really cared for and respected was all of a sudden gone, I guess, led to Ringo to be more aggressive in his substance abuse. Yeah. I'm just guessing. I don't know. But, you know, I would imagine, you know, when anybody passes away that you really care about, you know, you you just, you know, when you're young, you go, hey, what the heck? Yeah. Well, he was in the studio. I get. Yeah. He was what 40 at the time. Yeah. And he was in the studio prior to Lennon's murder, and Mm -hmm. Lennon had given him Grold with Only Me, I think. No, I I think it was a song that he wrote, Life Begins at 40, and was going to do that. 
recording sessions began prior to, to mm-hmm. Lennon's murder. And afterward, obviously, when they picked up again in 81, they took a different kind of meaning. Not to be crass about it, but if there was a time for people to be craving new Beatle product, <laughs> it would have been in the wake of John's murder. Because yeah, yeah. Yeah. there's a bit of nostalgia there. There's still the bit of sadness but it's also like the beatles are back in the public psyche to great lengths because of the murder and so i don't think ringo was necessarily thinking in those terms maybe some of the the people the record executives who were handling him might may have but i don't know if you remember or maybe you don't remember but ringo had a button he used to wear it said lenin fever (laughs) oh really (laughs) because everyone was buying anything lenin and that right. it kind of skyrocketed double fantasy to the charts and and everything else because people were just trying to grab hold of anything, you know. Yeah, it's what you do when something horrible happens. You you try and mm-hmm. connect with that person again, and mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, Ringo and Barbara also got serious about marriage in the wake of this stuff, and they actually got married at the same uh, Marylebone wedding office right. that Paul and Linda were. Uh, in sure. and uh, got married in April of 81 and there's all those photos those great photos of Paul and Linda and George and Olivia and Ringo and Barbara mm-hmm. from that and then Stop and Smell the Roses comes out and it does okay it's not a huge mega success but it does okay Rack My Brain I found this interesting the single off that record hit number 38 in the US and that was Ringo's last top 40 tune of his career Yeah, which I thought was interesting because that song is great sure but it also sort of proves again that Harrison Starkey success right when George and Ringo are getting together they tend to produce great things I don't know if it's just George knowing how to write for Ringo or like we were saying earlier George has a way of writing beatly sounding songs and so when Ringo is singing a George song there's just something very very beatly about that Rack my brain Rack my brain Till my head's filled with pain Rack my brain All dried up I'm all dried up It's a very interesting album to Stop and Smell the Roses because whoever the artist was that wrote the song or also produced it, it almost sounded like those artists, except with Ringo's voice. So you have a Stephen Stills tune. And to me, it's a very, very classic Stephen Stills type of song or Ron Wood or Harry Nielsen. Yeah. I mean, that's my opinion. That's why I liked... For whatever reason, Joe Walsh, when he produced Old Wave, he produced his songs in like a Mark Hudson fashion that would fit Ringo, and yet it sounded like Joe Walsh. Right. And it was so much better to hear that continuity throughout the record rather than a hodgepodge of different tunes. I think Ringo thought similar, because after the album's mixed reviews and certainly mixed success... He was looking, I think, specifically for a more consistent sound on the next one. And I think that's maybe why he had approached Paul to produce earlier in the process. And I'm not sure why Paul didn't commit to producing the whole thing. Although Paul did produce 
I think the tracks he worked on, so Private Property and Attention. Mm-hmm. Private Property was released as a second single on the record, and it failed to chart anywhere, and RCA dropped Ringo after that, <laughs> which seems harsh, honestly, because yeah. it's not like the record would... Like, it had a top 40 hit on it. It's not like he's worthless. Like, it's just... I don't know. It sounded like there was also some personality conflicts there and maybe Ringo had gotten into it a bit with some of the RCA folks and it just I think Ringo was still in the headspace like I'm a beetle like I should be given these things and he wasn't <laughs> back in that hungry kind of space you know yeah plus you know the narcotics or whatever else he was doing if he was doing those didn't help right so it was in this environment that Ringo's next project began old wave so Ringo, perhaps feeling nostalgic for the loss of his friend, like you mentioned, Dad, retreats to Tittenhurst Park, where he starts using the ground studio space again for recording. And we know Ringo has a history with this studio space prior to this. Born to Boogie was recorded there and and all that. But uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, this was the first return to Tittenhurst Park for recording Mm -hmm. in a long while for Ringo. Yeah, it was. He recorded in multiple places. I know he booked some time in the Bahamas again, and uh, he also worked with another fellow, Russ Ballard. Oh, yeah. And he had the Russ Ballard sessions. They didn't work out too well for him, but he did take one or two of the songs with him that he really liked, and I think they were some of the best songs that Russ Ballard ever made. You know, because Russ's mom died, and he was just depressed, so Russ wasn't really into producing Ringo, even though he was, Ringo was a hero of his. So anyway, all those songs went back to Tittenhurst with Ringo, and he didn't know what to do with them. So he did record in multiple locations. Majority of it was in Tittenhurst, and he redid a lot of the tracks there with Joe. Yeah, well, so like you mentioned, Ringo brings in Joe Walsh, who's uh, by that time an ex-Eagle, but an old friend of Ringo's from the mid-70s and the Hollywood vampire years. And he brought in Joe just to get that consistent sound. I guess it's the sound he was maybe looking for with Paul that just didn't quite work or didn't quite click. Mm -hmm. For what it's worth, I don't think private property or attention are terribly good songs, and I loathe the production on private property. And actually just goes to show like that whole pipes of peace style production that Paul was doing in these years just would not work for anybody else. Yeah. It just, I don't know to my ear. It's, it's, it's a little harsh. Um, I, I just want to bring up one point uh, about Russ Ballard. I was mentioning him. He was in the band Argent. I was trying yeah. to think of the band he was in and uh, he wrote most of their tunes and sang with them. Yeah, well, the track he brought to this album from those sessions is one of the strongest ones of the whole bunch, I think, and and we'll get to that in a moment as well. But Mm -hmm. So the sessions for this album began on February 6th, 1982, and a couple other musicians were on hand for it. Gary Brooker, of course, we know from the Mm -hmm. All-Star Band, etc. Chris Stainton on keyboards, and um, Ringo on drums and percussion, Mo Foster on bass, and Joe Walsh on guitar. There was a break in March of 82, and then the sessions continued in April. And sometime in May, Ringo decided to expand the studio space at Tittenhurst. So he actually laid the groundwork to make the studio bigger in the midst of these sessions. And by July, the recording sessions had wrapped, and Ringo set about searching for an outlet 
to release the record. As we had talked about, Ringo Starr had fallen at this point so hard and so fast that no major label was interested in signing him. There was a label called uh, Boardwalk mm-hmm. that it sounded like he was making some headway with. Boardwalk also helped in distributing the um, Stop and Smell the Roses album. Yeah, so he had a champion in Boardwalk, the guy who ran the joint, I think. Mm-hmm. And then that guy fell ill and negotiations became much more complicated once Ringo didn't have an advocate within the label. So Boardwalk didn't want to have anything to do with it. In the end, RCA Canada, a division of the company whose U.S. counterpart would not renew with Ringo, released the album. And they did so in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, the Netherlands, Mexico, and Brazil. Mm. And it was also released in Germany on a label called Bella F- Bellaphone. Bellaphone. That label. So, yeah, as we were saying, this was kind of a hidden Ringo album. There was no U.S. or U.K. release for this. But it was released in those other territories on June 16th, 1983, as we mentioned, produced by Joe Walsh and engineered by Jim Nipper, mixed at Santa Barbara Sound Recording. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the story of Old Wave. It is kind of a sad story (laughs) because Ringo had just fallen so far (laughs) as a a commercial entity. I don't know what he could have really done to have reclaimed it. I think he tried. I think he tried really hard and it just didn't work out. And I don't know if there's any clean direction you can point and say Ringo should have done this or should have done that short of reuniting the Beatles in 81 which we know there was some chatter about and prior to John being killed if Jack Douglas is to be believed short of that I'm not sure there's anything that was really going to revitalize him that something like caveman didn't do you know I mean I guess you could make an argument like he could have gone the share route and became an acclaimed actor and started winning awards and things like that i guess i guess he could have gone that route but he didn't and instead he just sank after this further and further into drugs and alcohol until he bottoms out hard in the end of the decade yeah yeah it it is sad if you look at the record old wave he's taken a dig at some of the music that his kids were into at the time some new wave So the new wave became the old wave. (laughs) Right. And I think the original title was It Beats Sleep. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I think I was reading that for the first time in one Beatlefest magazine a year prior to its release that, oh, there's an album Ringo's working on. It's called It Beats Sleep. (laughs) That's the start of that whole, like, him in concert going, all right, looks like three of you have bought the new album. And it's just like, Ringo. I mean, I, I appreciate that you're self-aware, but it also is like a little sad. <laughs> and you're like acknowledging this. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but anyway, before we go into the track by track here, I thought we'd saunter over, Dad. Would you like to join me into the bullet corner? Sure. Open the door. Good morning. I'm going to be your instructor. Okay, I know you're anxious to jump right in. Bullet Corner. This is where I summarize the album we're listening to this week with some weird poetry for you all. And I have three bullets for this one. My first bullet is buckle up, open your squawk box, and go as far as you can go. 
Huh? Silence from Father. <laughs> Silence, which is in East Germany, where this album was released, is a sign of great admiration, actually, I'm told. <laughs> Bullet point number two. Mark Hudson protoplasm fed to the eagle's nest by the greatest beak hoover of them all. Raised eyebrows from father, which is a sign of great admiration in Brazil. I couldn't actually tell if the zoom had frozen or, or not. Uh, I think dad is loving these. All right, we got one more here. Let's see if we can turn it around at the end. Typical. How can I market an album with me hands held up? Okay. Woof. All right, that's been Paul's bullet corner. <laughs> All right, Dad, what do you say we talk about track one here? In My Car. In My Car, great song. I used to put it on when I got in my car after I recorded it. I loved it. I loved the Joe Walsh feel on it. I loved his slide. The whole thing was Joe Walsh, especially the end uh, when Joe is singing the refrain. That's right. Great, great. Yeah, so this track is credited as being written by Mo Foster, Kim Goody, Ringo, and Joe Walsh, and was the album's first single released on June 16th, 1983. Clearly, Ringo believed in it because it was actually released again in November of 1994, over 10 years after it initially came out on the Right Stuff label, which was responsible for releasing Ringo's later 80s recordings on CD for the first time in the 90s. And there it is. Ringo Star Struck. Volume 2. The Best Of. Volume 2. Yeah, great. It's right there. Right below Rack My Brain. <laughs> That's right. It's got Ringo on lead vocals, drums, and percussion. Joe Walsh on lead guitar, backing vocals. Mo Foster on bass guitar. Chris Stainton on keyboards. Gary Brooker on keyboards. And Mark Easterling on backing vocals. Steve Hess on backing vocals. And Patrick Marashek on backing vocals. If this song was released on Goodnight Vienna, this would have been a hit. A number one hit. I'm convinced of it. This, mm. is a, this song to me is a case of bad timing. Yeah. Yeah classic Ringo. This one would slide right in there on the Ringo album or Goodnight Vienna. I do agree. It didn't oh. beat sleep. One of his... <laughs> why he and Joe didn't do this one live together with the All-Star Band is a complete mystery to me because... Oh, that would have been awesome. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Well, not only that. So, yeah, this was a Ringo single that kind of went nowhere, but Joe Walsh himself recorded a version of this track and it turned into kind of a hit for Joe in 1987 on the album Got Any Gum. Mm. And guess who plays sax on that record, Dad? Mark Hudson? Mark Rivera. Oh, Mark Rivera. Okay. Of the All-Stars. So that's a little bit of an All-Star jam right there. <laughs> that's who I remember. <laughs>
Joe's version is cool. I think I like the instrumentation more on his. There's more guitar solos and things, but hmm. in the end, it's just it's Ringo's vocal that sells this song for me. It's a clean vocal. And what I love about this album as a whole, not just this song, is the production. This track is a great, great example. It's clean, atmospheric. It's got that 80s slickness without feeling overly electronic. And to me, is like a better version of what Jeff Lynne does. Or maybe what Jeff Lynne is going for, but sort of self-sabotages at the last minute. Yeah. I think this is like that updated 80s version of the 60s Beatles sound that that Jeff kind of goes for. Yeah, I think Jeff Moore is involved, at least with ELO, into uh, reverb or something like that. I know Harrison hated reverb, but yeah, I agree. In my car, Ringo, his vocals are clean. You really can't hear anything that's double-tracked or triple-tracked over his vocals. It's great. It's a great song. Love it. The synth is another star, this one for me, on the whole album. But it's such a tasteful synth. It's not overly 80s mm. sounding. It's just kind of a rock and roll synth, and mm-hmm. it works. It sounds like, I don't know, like a, like a Wilbury synth, even though you don't get a lot of synth on there. It just sounds very tasteful to me. Mm-hmm. It's, it feels timeless. It, at, at one point, it's like, you almost feel like you've heard this song somewhere before. Like there's a... <laughs> probably heard Joe's version <laughs> well, first. <laughs> you probably heard Joe's. There's a music video for Joe's, which is hilarious, is by there? the way. It's, oh, like, it's him driving around... LA in the back of a limousine in a bathrobe playing guitar and yelling at mechanics. I have to see that. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it. <laughs> I didn't see it at all until a few nights ago when I was doing this research and it's crazy. But speaking of crazy, that brings us to track two, Hopeless. Hopeless. When I woke up this morning, much to my surprise, the sun was going down and I was still alive. And according to my eyes, the Martians have invaded its homes. I went to see my doctor to ask him what to do, depending on the good old Joe song. Yeah, so this is a Ringo Joe co-write. And when you start it, it kind of has the tinge of a novelty tune. But ultimately, I think this transcends the novelty tune. And even though it's sort of funny and silly, to me, this one's like No No Song, where it's like, yeah, it's funny, but the song is actually also good. Mm. Again, it just re- it reeks of Joe Walsh all over it with the guitar and everything. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah, this is a track when I first heard it, I thought this is ridiculous because he's talking about the Martians invading and stuff. Yeah. But when you listen to it more... <laughs> It become it. It's really good. It's morbidly funny in a way that Ringo typically isn't, and I think that's the Joe you're talking about. It's very Joe Walsh. Yeah, that's why they got along because of their sense of humor. I think. Yeah, and it actually kind of reminds me of a George Harrison track. In fact, if you were to tell me that George wrote this one, I would have believed you, just because there's that droll humor and that revelry in the futility of humanity that george has you know george loves singing about the transcendence of god but he also loves talking about how humanity is kind of pathetic and a big joke (laughs) so that's why i kind of get out of hopeless is that sentiment you know 
especially when he's singing everybody dies and you hear it like it's almost like that sing-songy like this cheering when that line comes up which is sort of like odd but it's also hilarious and beautiful i think joe just watched ringo's life you know when i woke up this morning much to my surprise the sun was going down and i was still alive (laughs) i love that that's great (laughs) that is ringo and joe (laughs) it's fantastic i wonder who contributed there's inner peace through meditation Because I, I, f- I know Ringo says that he's done the TM thing since 68, but I feel like if, I don't know if like now was, was the time he was doing the TM. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. I, I know Joe is into it as well, but I'm not sure when Joe picked that up. So uh, might have been just, you know, part of Ringo's life that Joe was seeing through his glasses or, you know, I'm not sure how much Ringo wrote that song. Or just was the subject of it? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know what the split was. You know, often with Ringo, it's just like contributing a line or something. Like, Mm. no cause for alarm, it's hopeless. (laughs) (laughs) Like, uh, I I could feel Doc, I'm seeing double and how are both of you? Because that sounds like a corny joke Mm. that he would say. Mm. And then I don't know what he says after that, but it's like, okie okie, mau mau. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, that something is. weird. You know, it was interesting. I was reading that I Me Mind book, and George was describing Ringo's contribution to the song Badge. Oh, right. Ringo contributed the line, uh, I think, about the swans that they live in the park. He showed up blacked out drunk <laughs> at uh, George and Eric Clapton's place, and he, said, <laughs> he contributed that line in a stupor and left. It's just like, what life is this guy leading? That is so weird. <laughs> Because it's kind of a good line, too. <laughs> yeah, he's had a lot of good lines. Tomorrow Never Knows or whatever. You know, he you know, he would come up with some pretty interesting things. Yeah. What was going on in that brain? We'll never know. What goes on? Anyway, that brings us to track three. Alibi. You came into my life when I was looking for an alibi. Looked in my eyes and I could tell you no lie. I was making life feel alright, but it wasn't good. Another Ringo Joe co-write. Oh yes. And now to me this one sounds like if Blind Man and You Can't Fight Lightning were fused together. Mm. It's got a little of that blind man that wow like that sort of yeah you know cowboy like dusty western thing yeah i was never a big fan of that song alibi for whatever reason i think blind man does it better yeah yeah it's a very strange tune it's again i hate to be like a broken record but it does sound like a joe walsh throwaway yeah again i don't know who he was writing about or whatever but it does sound joe walshy well i guess the thing of note on this track for me is Ringo's vocals again, because I think if this song was sung by a more traditional, quote-unquote, singer, it mm. wouldn't work. But I think Joe Walsh, like Perry before him and Mark Hudson after him, knows exactly where to put Ringo's voice mm-hmm. and how to treat it on these tracks. And because of that, it works to me. The recording of Alibi and the whole album 
was made in 1983, but sounds sonically crisp as records made decades later, which is kind of remarkable to me. It's just so damn clean. And I don't know how, how they got that sound. Maybe it was simply the environment or I don't know who was engineering the thing, but clearly somebody very talented was engineering the thing just really sounds beautiful. Even when the tracks aren't amazing, the thing sounds great. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to track four here, a Joe Walsh original, Be My Baby. Be My Baby. Not that one, the other one. (laughs) Great song, I love it. can't decide whether this track or in my car or as far as we can is my favorite on the record but regardless this is in my top three yeah i agree it's a great one again the vocal just sort of has to be ringo and his voice is front and center which again i love i also love the squawk box thing on this one that joe does Mm. just very charming and funny and it bears repeat listens I remember I was driving around Yonkers with Vin Turturro and this song came on one of my mixes, Be My Baby. Okay. And Vin was like, what is this? And I was like, oh, this is, this is Ringo. This is old wave Ringo. And he's like, this sounds really, he didn't want to say this sounds really good, but you could hear it in his soul. <laughs> That he felt that way and just couldn't bring himself to utter the words. Um, But it's good. It's a good track. I like this song a lot. This went on a lot of mixes for me. Yeah, it's a good rock and roll tune, I always thought. To me, the Eagles could have made that song good. Do you know at all about how the Eagles split or anything like that? I was watching that Ringo Starr Going Home Disney Channel special thing, and it occurred to me that Timothy B. Schmidt and Joe Walsh were both on that second all-star band yep. dais. And I guess they must have been fine with each other. <laughs> they were playing with each other then. <laughs> yeah, I would assume so. I forgot the name of the guitarist that uh, had a lot of problems Joe Walsh replaced. But there was a big issue with that guy, and there was a personality conflict. So you're saying Joe Walsh was kind of the Tommy Shaw of yeah. uh, e- the Eagles? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of folks in that band the Eagles that didn't like Glenn Fry. This one didn't like Don Henley. It strikes me as odd that that group was as big as they were because they just weren't a part of my lexicon beyond Hotel California growing up. Mm. So I guess they must not have struck you much at that time either because... I had all their records at that time. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. You were an Eagles fan? Sure. Actually, it's funny. Funny side note, I remember when I was a kid... I was living at my parents' house, and Uncle Bruce was in the other room, and he had the radio on, and Uncle Bruce came running over and says, hey, there's a new Beatles song coming out. It's called Take It Easy. I was like, what? And he says, yeah, the, the guy said it was the Beatles. <laughs> Turned out to be the Eagles. You know? <laughs> 
I was a fan of it. I thought, this can't be the Beatles. Well, maybe. <laughs> well, so on the uh, one of the other shows I produce, uh, Lucy Walsh, Joe Walsh's daughter, has that funny story of her on the playground at school telling kids that her father was a Beatle because she didn't know the difference either. So hmm. Lucy and... Lucy and Uncle Bruce had something in common there. <laughs> you know, Beetle Joe. Beetle Joe. <laughs> That's the Lucy and Annabelle show for anyone looking. Shameless plug. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, the Eagles had, you know, not to go off on the Eagles, but they had all those albums that I thought were great, Desperado and On the Border, and they were a big staple of mine when I went to college. One of these nights, it was fantastic. But I think, like I said, there was a big falling out between a couple of the members, you know, from Hotel California after that record was made onward. You know, people like Don Felder and, you know, he didn't like or somebody didn't like him and his ego. And yeah, like you said, it's like Tommy Shaw and Dennis DeYoung and all that, you know. Yeah. Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr and Ringo Starr. <laughs> um, that brings us to track five here. She's about a mover. Oh, great song. This is a, the first cover on the record, and it is a cover of the 1965 hit by Sir Douglas Quintet. Ladies and gentlemen, lords and ladies, Hullabaloo probably presents the Sir Douglas Quintet. For me, this is not exactly a lot of complexity, but it doesn't matter because it's like a Matchbox-style jam, something you would have gotten from the Beatles at, say, the time of, like, Beatles for Sale or something. And this one and a couple of the other tracks, to me, if you had all the Beatles alive and they were to put an 80s, like, cover album together, this would have been on there. I don't get around much anymore would have been on there. Mm -hmm. Got my mind set on you would have been on there. Devil in the Deep Blue Sea would have been on there. Something, you know, it's just there's a nostalgia that happens in the 80s for these old songs that I guess Lennon had gotten out of his system in the 70s. But I really like the 80s production on these older tunes. And this is a hit for me. I I really like this one. Um, Yeah, it was a good song. I always liked it. My mom liked it. I don't know why. It was like what I say. (laughs) Yeah. It does have that quality to it. And they have that great Joe Walsh solo at the end there. Mm. I love the New Orleans-style horns that come in as well. It's just a lot of fun. I'm I'm a sucker for big horns on records, and mm. I, so I really appreciate this one. And it almost has a – it almost feels like a bit of a Ringo circus, actually, is how I would describe <laughs> it. It feels a little like that. And also major competition for the best vocal on the album. I think this one is a great, great vocal. 
It's funny you said a Ringo Circus. I think that's the kind of tour he wanted after his Bad Boy album. He wanted to bring out Dancing Girls and a whole Vegas type of an outfit, similar to what you have with... Um, uh, he had this little guy he used to play with. Kid Rock. Thank you. Really? Yeah. I was right? Yeah. I remember when I saw him with James... That was amazing because he did have all these things like a a Vegas type of uh, show with the dancing girls in the cages and the posters coming down and him interacting with them all and and everybody was dressed and it, it was rather interesting and I could see Ringo doing that and I'm glad he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, leave it to Kid Rock to keep it classy. Um, That brings us to track six, the second cover on the record, I Keep Forgetting. I keep forgetting you don't love me no more. I keep forgetting you don't want me no more. I keep forgetting that you told me that you didn't want me around. Well, that's side B of the record ah, itself. Flip it over. You, you kept flip it over. I kept forgetting is on the side B. I don't have my vinyl copy yet. I only just bought it on the Discogs. Great song. I keep forgetting. It's a good one. So this is a Lieber and Stoller track, mm-hmm. and it was popularized by fellow named chuck jackson in 1962 and it's gotten covered an awful lot over the years including by some interesting notables here procol harem apparently did a version of this song Mm. david bowie i didn't know that and joe cocker wow now i think bowie's voice would really suit this track because he's got that deep baritone thing that he pulls out for songs like this you know yeah i guess so i'm forgetting have you heard you heard it I haven't heard any of them, but we're going to play them all for you now. (laughs) I keep forgetting you don't love me no more. I keep forgetting you don't want me no more. I keep forgetting... What's interesting about this track is Ringo doesn't play the drums on it. <laughs> oh, Ringo. Russell Kunkel plays the drums. You silly man. You're a drummer, for God's sake. <laughs> he's, do- he's doing the kid rock back and forth. <laughs> it's another, it sounds beatly, this yeah. cover version. It sounds extraordinarily beatly. And it's at this point in my writing notes for this album that I start writing notes like, is there a bad track on this record? And I don't think there is. Hmm. I think they're all very good. I think this is why Ryan chose it. Hmm. This is like, 
hit after hit of really solid tunes. Obviously, a grand total of zero actual <laughs> monetary hits. But really, it's a strong record. By the time you open side B with this, that's a great side opener. And um, I guess I, my note here I'll have to throw out is I love the drums on this track. Um, <laughs> good job to Mr. Kunkel. I thought those tom-tom crashes sounded a little complicated. <laughs> Just thought he was practicing. To be honest, side A was very strong, and side B, opening up with I Keep Forgetting, is, to me, as a listener and a lover of Ringo's style, I was a little bit taken back by side B. I think it could have been stronger. Yeah, really? Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of jammy stuff toward the mm. end there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As as we get to the next tune, ooh, should we talk about Picture Show? Life? Yeah, that one just—it's uh, an older song, but that one just fell flat for me. Can you imagine all those girls are strolling? All the boys are holding. They're doing the best to make it through another LA night in a picture show night. Their own little world in their own little space. They can be who they it want. just was wishy-washy, it seemed. So you know what this reminded me of is husbands and wives. Yeah. Oh, the Ringo one from Good Goodnight Vienna. I think he wrote that, right? Didn't he? Or Husbands and Wives. Oh no, no, no. That was um um We have a no Googling oh. policy on this show, Dad. We're not to Google anything. I never Google. Dad's only on Bing. Dad was like, listen, trying to get Melinda Gates that money. <laughs> and then she you needs type some... in husbands and wise. Melin- <laughs> Bing, husbands and wives. <laughs> Marriage is the death trap. <laughs> it's like about potato chips and husbands. Husbands and wise. Roger Miller wrote that song. I know him anywhere. He wrote a lot of novelty songs in the 60s that I'd love. Yeah. And he wrote Husbands and Wives. And I don't mind that song, but Ringo singing that song mm. just doesn't really work for me. And it's one of the low points on Goodnight Vienna for me. And I guess this one's a low point. I like this more than that. Picture show life. Yeah, I do too. There's like a pretty bridge in it. True. I don't know what it is about people who live in Hollywood complaining about Hollywood, but it's something you hear in a lot of songs. Yeah, people like to complain. Well, sure, (laughs) but like Hollywood specific, there is an undercurrent in a lot of tunes that is not limited to any set time period where people talk about the hollowness of Hollywood and how it'll drain you and and put you through the ringer and all this stuff and sap the life out of you and stuff. And Mm. I I pulled out a couple verses from this tune here. So Hollywood is waltzing, doing that double talking, anything they could do to make it through another LA night in a picture show life. And can you imagine all those girls are strolling, all the boys are holding, they're doing their best to make it through another LA night. So it's all about how everyone's struggling and they're all operating in this horrific futility 
I pulled out another line here. They win and they lose and they pick and they choose. They've been dancing for so long. What else can they do? <laughs> Hollywood is rocking doing that double talking, anything they can do. So again, it's like calling LA this vapid place or like people don't know what else to do, but to abuse themselves and sort of just have fun. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but boy i don't know man did ringo read these lyrics before he sang them i don't know <laughs> i don't know i mean he spent a lot of time here for sure I mean, now he lives up the road <laughs> yeah now picture show life like i said was it just sounded so i mean aside from the lyrics you just read which sound depressing uh it sounded more very you know la-di-da disney-ish type of thing and it just the way it was produced and everything that specific one I'm yeah. not a big fan of. A little hokey. A little yeah. hokey. Yeah. Well, that brings us to a track that I shouldn't like based on my track record of songs of Ringo's that I enjoy, but I very much do enjoy on this record mm. as far as we can, as opposed to the 1978 version, as far as we can go. You don't have to say I see it on your face. When tears fall They leave a trace I told myself It won't be long It's too bad Now this is the one, Dad, you were talking about earlier. Yeah, with Russ Ballard. If you listen to the lyrics... When I did my research for the other show, I found Russ really wrote songs that reflect his mood and about him, same the way Lennon used to write yeah. in first person. So I thought, okay, you know, I'll give this another listen. So when I listened to As Far As We Can Go, it was just an amazing song with a lot of nice lyrics and, and a good structure to the song. Yeah. Did Ringo do it justice? Well, that's up to you guys to decide, but... Ringo sang it okay, but yeah, it's a beautiful Russ Ballard song. It, it falls into the same surprise elements that the Three Dog Night song, Liar, Russ Ballard wrote that. You know, it, it's going melodically, and then all of a sudden you get this liar, you know, this this yeah. harshness in it. it it's great. I, I became a big Russ Ballard fan. Very, very talented. So yeah, that yeah. is a good song. I, I when I bought the album, I never liked it because I wanted rock and roll. You know? But right. um, I've grown to appreciate this song a lot. Oh, yeah, me too. I think this is one of his strongest ballads in the solo years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to dispute a, a track like you know, Only You and his vocal on that is actually really good. But I, I don't know. I think his his vocal on this one is really good too. And I think part of that is Joe knowing how to treat it. Mm -hmm. So this song, as you mentioned, was recorded in 78 with Russ. Mm -hmm. And the only thing they kept from that original 78 recording was Ringo's vocal. Joe re-recorded the rest of the track with the band and then sweetened it in spots. And I think he just did it really smartly because there's certain harmonies that he knows to bolster Ringo's voice for. Mm -hmm. And again, that's what it is. It's like if you bring in somebody to just make a record with Ringo, it's not going to really always work out. But if you bring in somebody who goes into this thing knowing you are going to make a Ringo record 
and you want to do Ringo justice, I think that's what Joe did here. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew how to treat it. Right. Yeah. I mean, the demo version from 78 was very bare. It only had three musicians on it. And I think Russ did most of the double tracking. I think Joe heard the song. Ringo must have loved it for selecting it for this record. And he heard it and he said, "Okay, I'm going to add to it. And I think he did a a really good job. Yeah. I mean, to me, it sounded like a, a Rick Ocasek ballad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is reinforced a little by the synth and stuff on it. But again, it's tasteful. It mm-hmm. is not a an overdone synth. And yeah, I just really love this one. So on the on the CD version that came out in the 90s that we mentioned earlier, they do give you the original Bad Boy version. Mm-hmm. And, that, you know, that one sounds good, too, actually. I like that one as well. Um, yeah, I like so. that one a lot. say enough about that guy russ i turned out to be a big fan of his i think if this was again in the ringo or goodnight vienna era this could have been a number one or or a, a certainly a big hit I, I i don't know i was listening to this one going why wasn't this one a hit it just sounds so damn good yeah yeah it's a dance era punk new wave <laughs> Right. Still, yeah, but you have Ocasek writing these schmaltzy, classic, spectery sounding ballads and stuff, and they're all hitting. Yeah, that's so. true. That's true. I don't know. I don't know. Well, that brings us to the other song, the last song on the album. No, well, we're we second more. to the last song on the album. Although they may as well be one long jam. We have yeah. everybody's in a hurry but me. Right. And that one is the one I love with John Entwistle and Eric Clapton. They just show up at his house and they start playing. (laughs) Yeah, and Ray Cooper. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's a great song. It just, it did a lot for me in this record. It was a great closer for me, even though that wasn't the last song on the album. Well, there's, uh, I think this is only one of two Eric Clapton collaborations on a Ringo record, because mm. didn't he also do Never Without You? He did. Or he, he flew the solo in on that. Yeah. He, I don't know well, if he did more, actually. Yeah. Don't remember offhand. It's good. It's I, mean, I don't have much to say about it, just that I like that it's a jam. It reminds me a bit of Apple Jam, and I, I love yeah. Apple Jam. Like if there was lyrics on Apple Jam, something. <laughs> Got to have a thousand bucks for that. That's right. <laughs> to that's get the royalties. lyrics. There's <laughs> royalties right there. So yeah, that's I mean, that's about all I have to say about that one. Then we have the last track here, Going Down, another Ringo, Joe Walsh co-write. Yeah.
my second note on this one is there's a bunch of squeeze energy happening here. Squeeze as in the band. Really? Or is somebody squeezing Ringo? No, the band. No, no one's oh, squeezing Ringo. I mean, well, maybe <laughs> he was newly married at the time. But the no, uh, it sounded like squeeze, and maybe that was just because the harmonica. It was oh, okay. maybe not squeeze. Maybe like Super Tramp. Take the long way home. That's Super that Tramp. That right? is Super Tramp. Yeah, I I agree with you. It sounded like that a little. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But you had the same lineup of uh, crazies. <laughs> you had Eric Clapton and John Entwistle. <laughs> Which is yeah. great, you know. To me, it, it followed that other song. Everybody's in a hurry, but me. It followed yeah. it perfectly on the on the album. Well, that uh, brings us to the end here of our discussion of old wave. Shall we get into a bit of reception, Dad? Sure. The old wave. Just wanted to let you know is only thirty six minutes, fifty seven seconds long. It's a great length. Good for an album. Does this hit the nine? Ah, uh, it does. It hit. Oh no, it goes ten. Sorry. Ryan's magic track number was nine. Mm. He felt that you need, or maybe it was 10. God, I don't even remember. I'll have to listen to some now here, this episode. <laughs> oh, he actually rated this one? No, he had, uh, he was saying that the optimum track length is. Oh, okay. Or maybe he said 10. I thought it was nine, but it's like everybody thinks they need to do 14 because the Beatles did 14. But actually, once you hit 14, you start getting some duds in there so you may as well keep it at a tight nine yeah and have them all be good well you know that that goes back to the old laws of the recording industry back in the 60s where they had to have you know no more than so many minutes and if you can compress it all into 12 tracks or 14 tracks that's it that's why your british versions are so much different than the american versions because they put more time into the others because there wasn't that law as right. in America. I don't know if it was an FCC or RIAA law or one of those laws. The Burgermeister is no longer in power and people can make albums as long or as short as they want to these days. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> they never quite tell you how Burgermeister was overthrown. I feel like he might have gotten beheaded, maybe, the Burgermeister. Burgermeister. You know, I actually seen a statue of him, the Burgermeister, when I was in Hamburg. You saw the Burgermeister. I took a photo of it. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> wow. Was his Smithers next to him? I don't too? know. It didn't look like the cartoon, but it, it was the Burgermeister. <laughs> it was an odd statue. It's a difficult responsibility. <laughs> hey, guy. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> maybe calm down a little he's like i am gonna crucify you for that toy duck it's like hey maybe we all take a step back maybe we all take a little bit of a step back and go drop some acid with mrs claus by the fountain because she's having fun she's living in her she's living in her true color self oh geez yeah i remember that it used to make you cry <laughs> Everybody's in a hurry but me. Let's get into some reception. <laughs> Gentlemen, you've just recorded your first number one. Wow, an award statue! Oh, it's a Grammy. So I couldn't find. A single review other than the one. I found one review. Oh, you did? I found one. Oh, jeez. It is from All Music, 
by a mm. reviewer named William Rollman, who gave the album three and a half stars, which is kind depending on your point of view aka pete best i would give it many stars but this man decided to give it three and a half so the review reads as such produced by joe walsh old wave was a well put together collection of good pop rock songs that was all wrong for ringo star the songs required interpretive abilities simply not found in a singer of ringo's pleasant but limited voice and phrasing She's about a mover, and I keep forgetting were appropriate covers, but Ringo was out of his depth on reflective songs like Picture Show Life and As Far As We Can Go. There was also a throwaway instrumental, Everyone's in a Hurry But Me, featuring Eric Clapton and John Entwistle. Neil Bogart, the head of Boardwalk, Ringo's record label, died during the making of this album, and the closest it got to an American release was on RCA Canada, which was just as well. Wow. Uh, so a little harsh, little harsh from William Rollman, but that's the only review I found. And if it charted places, I have no idea. Yeah, I do have some old stuff on Ringo's um, album, but I don't know where it is offhand. People who are listening to this podcast can't see that Dad is <laughs> sitting in a room surrounded some might say closing in on him with beatles collectibles and it is very impressive if daunting assortment it's like the hoarder show it is well there's a little more organization to it than that is what i would say but i'm looking at a ringo autograph up there i'm looking at all kinds of cool stuff on that wall behind you but I guess Old Wave didn't make the cut. No, it's not there. I do have Ringo the Fourth's uh, badge, a promotional badge for Ringo. I used it to gouge my eyes out in 1975. I just had to. I kept forgetting. Blind man with you. Anyway, I, I tried to find something really quick, and I couldn't. A for effort, which is a better score than anyone gave Old Wave. But, Dad, that brings us to the end of this program here. And yeah. if people would like to listen to more of the history of the Beatles, where should they tune their internet dials to? Please dial to the Beatles Yesterday and Today podcast. And uh, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And what it is is a history or documentary on the Beatles uh, from the early days all the way through to somewhat the present days we're on the year 1976 or 77 right now and um it just follows them day by day and what they've been recording what they've been doing you'll learn a little bit more about russ ballard and all other people that uh had contributed to their records you'll hear their voices their music and their history well, that sounds awful fun, Dad. Now, when do these episodes come out? I really don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> they come out. At, I'll, I'll just say because I, I I help produce it for you. I don't do the actual nitty gritty, the the actual show stuff, but uh, I do put them together for podcasts, and they are every other week on Mondays is the release days, and as Dad mentioned, we'll be on seventy seven, possibly even seventy eight by the time this episode comes out. I don't know. 
but you'll learn an awful lot about Ringo on that program. <laughs> yes, every other Monday. Some would say too much, <laughs> you know, a little too much. In fact, it's interesting, in your show, that's where I learned where the shades and beard thing came from that he kept from pretty much his entire life. It was when he shaved his head and eyebrows in a drunken stupor, and then he just started wearing shades and never took them off. <laughs> he never looked back. <laughs> so we're talking 75 here, so that's 45, six years in shades. His eyes are very much protected, never gets glaucoma. He's good. It's good to go. Wow. You heard it here first. Nine out of ten doctors recommend shaving your body hair in a drunken stupor so that you can protect your eyes from glaucoma. <laughs> took the eyebrows off, too, was the disturbing part, actually. When you look at those photos, yeah. you're just like, you look like a, like a tall baby. <laughs> Ringo, if you're listening, you look great. (laughs) Now, God bless him. He had the uh, guts to do it. I was at a party once down the shore, and I I remember this guy, Jay and Arlene. Yeah, I shouldn't use their first names and last names, but uh, I will uh, because they had a lot of guts. (laughs) Arlene shaved Jay's head completely bald along with everything else. It was Whoa. just amazing. We were drinking, had a keg of beer, had all the things, and wild. That just happened. I just remember that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like one of those cats. <laughs> what cats? <laughs> you know, hairless cats. Oh God, no! This was this was amazing. I'll never forget it as long as I live. But I didn't remember it <laughs> until you just mentioned it. <laughs> Kept forgetting. <laughs> I, I assure you, if Susanna could hear Andy, she'd be disappointed in the both of us. <laughs> she has headphones on. She can't hear. Dad, thank you for joining us today oh, yeah, on the no. Never Hear This program. I wanted to thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been fun. Uh, I enjoy the Now Hear This program. I never thought I'd be on it, and I do appreciate being on it. So thank you. opinion about the album we discussed today contact us at at now hear this podcast on instagram at now hear this pod on twitter facebook.com slash now hear this podcast or email us at now hear this official at gmail.com see you next time And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production, and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Featuring Eric Clapton and John Entwistle, Dad is getting up to walk away. He is disgusted by this. He is absolutely disgusted.
He took off his headphones so he can't hear me, but I was saying something. And anyway, that's why Dad is the best co-host of them all. <laughs> oh, yeah, <wait. laughs> well, hey, Ryan. Hey, Paul. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm here to tell the listeners that if they'd like to contribute mm. to help keeping these Now Hear This episodes coming, well, they can donate featuring the wonderful new donation technology that ACAST has developed for us. That's right, ACAST has helped us out. They host the show. Yeah, our hosts, Acast, have made it really easy to donate to the show. They have an Acast supporter feature, and there's a link in the show description that you can follow to kick a couple bucks for the show. It can be five bucks, a hundred bucks, less than a dollar. We don't care. Yeah, just something to keep the lights on. It's all out of pocket, and we do this out of love, and that's it. And we love you all for listening. Thank you very much for doing that. Couldn't said it better myself. Okay. All right. Well, bye then. <laughs>